Well, good morning. Uh, and uh, I'd like to start off with a list of names. Potosi in Bolivia and Montana. Deadwood, Detroit, Dodge City, Cheyenne. One of the legacy of boom and bust is names that become part of our entertainment, Deadwood. Those of you who have your mocha every morning are using the name of a one-time boomtown seaport in Yemen uh, that flourished, and you can probably guess what commodity made it flourish on the Red Sea. And so uh, I'll be talking about legacies, but one of them is place names, um, and, uh, and that includes Montana. And when you say Virginia City in the West, you can mean one of either two places, and both have boom and bust histories. I want to start off with some definitions of what constant, when in, as, as I see it, constitutes a boom and bust and then the combination. With boom, I think one of the critical categories is rapidity, rapid growth. The kind of growth that will give it, the city a nickname like Magic City, which of course is the nickname of Billings or Minot, North Dakota, a city that springs up perhaps in a, an unlikely place, high on a mountainside or out in the middle of the, the, uh, the plains where there seemed to be little reason for people to establish there, much less for something to grow quickly. So rapid growth would be uh, one of them. Another uh, category would be a single resource, if it's an extractive industry or a single economic operation. So a mine, a railroad division point, and it could be a government operation, building a dam, like Fort Peck Dam. So that, that single focus, which may bring tremendous prosperity to a place, but if that single enterprise or activity fails, it gives that place very little else to fall back on. And thus, sometimes you end up with ghost towns as well. Part of a boom town is fame, publicity, notoriety, uh, at the time and enduring, and this is where the place names come in, is uh, uh, the name lasting long after, but they're often instantly famous within a region, within the, a nation, and sometimes, and Butte has one of those cities overseas as well. Uh, given the, 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 folk, the single economic focus, there's often specialized structures, of visible, you know, highly visible structures in a boom town, whether that's a, a mining head frame, an oil drill or derrick, a locomotive roundhouse or coaling tower, grain elevators or more. Often as well, there's uh, uh, huge amounts, uh, large amounts of temporary housing. In the old days, it might have been tents. Uh, wall tents, boarding houses, nowadays it might be trailers, and as you see around this area here, what are called man camps, for, and that also reflects the demographics commonly of, of, of boom towns, and that would be often very much male-oriented, many more men than women, and, often rel and many adults, and often relatively few children as well. But I think the thing that perhaps most characterizes, or most, because many of these things could be true of towns that might not be categorized as boom towns, is the, is the, the atmosphere. And this is a chance uh, in this here, whether it's a visual or just watching the truck traffic go down through the main street of, of Sydney, of, of energy, of optimism, of excitement. Uh, those are the positive sides. The other sides are disorder. 
lawlessness and, and violence as well. And that, but the, there's almost an unrealistic sense of expectation. And in fact, in boom towns, look back in retrospect, often it's almost delirial that the, uh, the optimism and this can go on forever and let's build a stone bank building. Um, so those are what I would call characteristics of the boom. The bust is in some ways counterpart to those. Uh, the bust often is uh, part of a long decline that may be seasons, years, even decades. But often in that mood of a boom town or a region that those the signs that are evident to us as historians looking back are either unrecognized or just denied. Uh, there's a, a powerful sense of denial in, 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 a, fading, in a fading boom town. And often what, what is something that's in, in progress for years or even decades becomes suddenly clarified at a very specific date. And I'm going to me start mentioning some dates that are on, uh, that are on the handout sheet. Because Montana, with its perhaps more than its share of boom and bust, has experienced some of that. One of the dates that caught Montana off guard was in July of 1971, when the Chilean Congress expropriated the, all the holdings of Anaconda Mining Company uh, with, uh, without any compensation. And uh, as you read, the, read about the history of Anaconda, this caught the the executives at Anaconda apparently completely off guard. Uh, and this would contribute to the demise of the Anaconda Company, its absorption into Arco, and the end of mining and smelting in Montana, the loss of those uh, valuable South American properties. 1980 was a really bad year for economics in Montana. Two events during that year, and they're on that sheet, uh, represent that. In February, on February 29th, the, uh, a bankruptcy judge in Chicago allowed the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul and Pacific Railroad to end almost all its operations in Montana. Uh, and the 450 people lost their job, not a large number, but in towns like small towns, division points like Harleton, Three Forks, Deer Lodge and Alberton, it was devastating, the loss of those railway jobs and the loss of grain shipping and more. And then several uh, months later, on September 29th, Black Monday, the uh, ARCO, which had bought the Anaconda properties, announced that its operations, uh, smelting and refining operations in Montana would not reopen. They were actually closed at the time. There was a nationwide copper strike on. But the announcement on September 29th told Montanans that those properties would never reopen. And it was probably one of the biggest blows Montana got in the past several decades. Over 1,000 people in Anaconda lost their jobs and about 500 in Black Eagle Great Falls. So often with bust, we remember those dates, those very specific dates when something that had been in progress for years or decades became suddenly clarified. Often with a, de a decision made far, far away in a bankruptcy court, in a corporate headquarters. And, 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 and out of that comes, and in, in Montana, uh, a, a sense of genuine surprise, anger, bitterness, blame, and sometimes even denial. This can't happen. This, this will have to be reversed. And then there's the classic boom and bust, which is when both those things, the boom and the bust, happen within, say, the working life of an adult, within the memory of someone living. And so Montana has two examples of that, and I'll use them as 
later on. One was the silver boom and bust in the, from the 1870s to the 1890s, and even shorter than that, just a decade, was the homestead, the dry land homestead boom that started about 1908 and lasted just a decade before drought and uh, post-war recession did it in. Uh, one aspect of boom and bust, at least here in Montana, is the role of distant markets distant decisions, government policies, and more. Montanans, probably since the uh, fur trade when there wasn't even a Montana, like to think they're self-reliant, they're independent, they're, uh, they can take care of themselves. They're, they came here in some ways, reasons to get away from the power and the influence of those distant places. And yet for many people working here in the boom and bust, they were subject to decisions made thousands and thousands of miles away. Changes in markets, changes in fashion, and more. Uh, Montana isn't big enough to support boom and bust. The markets, the population, there's no major urban centers. Uh, so the, the, the products, the services from boom and bust have to be bought, absorbed elsewhere, and we become reliant on those markets, the governments, and more. Sometimes local circumstances can be influential. Weather, for instance, the rainy 19-teens encouraged homesteaders to come here when they, um, thinking that that uh, uh, wet weather would continue. And of course, the end of that would uh, help contribute to the failure of the homestead boom. And most famously, perhaps, the winter of 1886-87, which uh, killed a lot of livestock and the open-range livestock business. But the, the, one of the themes is distance, things that are far away, and that can be distant markets, the eastern U.S., the industrial areas, overseas markets, can be distant labor. Some of these booms required huge numbers of immigrants, and so uh, famously in Butte, the Cornish from southwestern England, where they mined copper and tin, uh, came to Montana. And Montana became known in Cornwall. This is from a biography of A.L. Rouse, who was a, an a, a university scholar in England, of Elizabethan England, but he grew up in Cornwall. He was born in 1903, and this is what he writes in his history of the Cornish in America. In the village of my youth, Tregonesee, near the town of St. Austell, the goings-ons going goings in Butte, Montana, were more familiar to us than those of London. In one road in a village near my home, the cottages were named in succession, Calumet, Butte, Montana, proudly for their menfolk who had returned from there. So, Montana's need for labor in the mines, in the smelters, on the farms, and the railways made Montana well-known in far, far-flung places. But in some ways, what, how Montana was affected was decisions. And I want to use the example of silver um, as, a, as that. Uh, Montana, uh, the boom in Montana silver was obviously partly based in the fact that there was a lot of silver under the hills of Montana in Butte. Phillipsburg granite in areas south of Helena, like uh, around Wicks, Alta, 
uh, and Elkhorn. But that silver needed, uh, needed buyers, and there were two governments in the 1870s that resisted the gold standard, uh, the straight gold standard, and still tried to cling to a larger money supply based on gold and silver, not just for coinage, but as the actual basis for the size of the mo uh, monetary supply. One of those countries was the United States. Um, and the other one was the government of British India, which was ruled both from Calcutta and from London. And through the 1870s and 1880s, these governments or uh, people uh, benefiting from their mon monetary policies bought huge amounts of silver. The one of the dates on the, the handout sheet is 1878, February, the Bland-Allison Act. This required this. Act of Congress required the government to buy large monthly purchases of silver to make silver dollars and or print silver certificates that represented silver dollars. From this act and subsequent silver purchases, the U.S. government minted 15,000 tons of silver dollars. And actually, most of the United States didn't want them. They sat in vaults. Montana very, was very loyal to silver dollars. Most of them sat in vaults and were replaced by silver certificates that circulated in their stead. But it created a huge market uh, demand for the uh, uh, silver mines of Montana. In British India, there was what was called free coinage of silver. People, citizens, merchants, bankers could take silver to the two mints in India, in Calcutta and Bombay. The government had to turn those, uh, mint those and turn them into coins. India did not have a major supply of silver. Most of that silver came from North America, and Montana and Colorado in particular supplied huge amounts of silver to India, and their, uh, their open free coinage of silver. That came to an end in June 1920, uh, in 1893. Increasing pressure to become a gold standard nation um, hit both. So in June 26, a date that shattered the silver business in the Rocky Mountains, June 26, 1893, the colonial government of India in London announced that it would end free coinage acceptance of silver at its mints. Silver mines and mills throughout Montana and other parts of the Rockies shut down within hours after that announcement. Uh, through telegraph and submarine cables, the news spread around the world. Uh, and some literally shut down that day or within 24 hours. Some others held on longer. But then four days later, President Cleveland announced that he would call a special session of Congress. Um, he announced it on the 30th. He would, it was called for early August. And its main job of that Congress would be to repeal the, the Silver Purchase Acts. And the government, the government, U.S. market would uh, largely diminish as well. So this was devastating for the silver boom in Montana and elsewhere. Here's a description for, of what happened in Phillipsburg when uh, uh, by, uh, so, uh, the St. Louis-dominated company that ran up in Granite Hill announced they hung on a little bit longer. But August 1st, the news by telegraph came from St. Louis to shut everything down. And this is from. Uh, uh, Montana Pater, The History of Montana Mining by Muriel Sybil Wola. And, and it's, I don't think it's true, it's an overstatement, but it tells you something about the impression that busts leave, the memories that, that, that are left behind. A frantic exodus began. Old timers tell how 3,000 people left within 24 hours and how the mine engineer, upon receiving word to quit, tied down the whistle and let its wail diminish until the pressure dropped. When it ceased, the silence hurt.
So it was a, a devastating blow for the silver business. But those decisions in Washington, D.C., in the colonial office in London had tremendous impact. And in retrospect, we know that that was coming. We can look back and wonder how they were building brand new mills the month before. But there's something about a boom and human nature, perhaps, that didn't want to see that. Some of the other dates that are on the handout, eight, uh, the, the South African War, the Boer War, which of course was between the British government and the Afrikaner settlers in South Africa, was a war that used up horses. The British Army lost 21,000 soldiers in the Boer War. The British Army lost 400,000 horses, mules, and donkeys. And a lot of those came from Montana. Uh, uh, and so this is from a, a brochure, a booklet put out by the Montana government in 1926, a promotional. The heavy demand for horses during the Boer War marked the development of, of the Montana range horse. Miles City became the trading point for horses and incidentally, one of the largest horse markets in the world to which came buyers from all parts of the, of the world. So a lot of Montana horses went off and died in South Africa. 1914 to 1918, a lot of Montana horses whose farmers who were buying tractors uh, went off and died in the mud of Flanders Field. And then another uh, date, some other dates that were crucial, the, the dry land farming movement that began around 1908. Several factors came together to bring the, make this happen in central and eastern Montana. The idea of dry farming, which one of its major historians described simply as agriculture without irrigation in regions of scanty precipitation. Um, <laughs> And so there was a movement. It, it became almost evangelical in its nature, that just through uh, various techniques of cultivation and storing moisture in the soil, that one could grow wheat where there was 12 to 15 inches of rain and snow melt a year. Railroads promoted. I think one of the greatest publicity pieces is that on your handout, the, the plowman turning up gold dollars out of the soil of Mon eastern Montana. Railroads promoted it. There was uh, 1909 Congress passed an act that uh, doubled the size of a homestead from a quarter section, 160 acres, to uh, 320 acres. And so, and, and there was this uh, unusually wet weather that people hoped in the boom, boom town enthusiasm would, la would become permanent. And then Europe went to war in August of 1914. Of course, commerce and uh, Agriculture was very much disrupted by this, but to, for Montana, one thing in particular was important. Uh, the, the Russian Empire and Romania exported huge amounts of wheat from Black Sea ports, Black Sea seaports through the Turkish Straits, the Bosporus and Dardanelles, into the Mediterranean for export to Western Europe, which needed ex imported wheat to supplement its own growing, wheat growing. The Tur Ottoman Turkish government in August and uh, September in several steps shut down all merchant traffic through the Dardanelles and Bosporus. Uh, the Russian, this basically destroyed the Russian effort in the war and brought on the revolution there or contributed, but it also meant that over eight million tons of wheat that Western Europe was counting on to feed themselves would not be arriving because the Turks had blocked it. This was, of course, 
Uh, there's no, you know, uh, as Rahm Emanuel said, there's nothing like uh, making best out of a crisis as possible. And so this was an opportunity for grain growers in uh, Canada, United States, and Argentina to replace that Russian and Romanian wheat that was now blockaded in, uh, uh, and prevented. And so this brought, along with those other factors, brought tremendous growth to wheat growing in Montana. The price went up. The area being cultivated grew. The, uh, the, between the pre-war and the highest post-war price, the price of wheat tripled from about 80 cents a bushel to over $2.40 a bushel. And one of the people cashing in on this was Wallace Stegner's father, hence the quote there at the top of the handout, who uh, he with his family homesteaded on, uh, in Saskatchewan, literally on the U.S. border. They did not go up there to set up a long-term diversified farm. They went up there to make a big pile of money, uh, develop the homestead and sell it and get rich, or at least by the standards of the time. And so uh, the, the, the war in, uh, was a significant driver to the Montana wheat boom, but even per, uh, more specifically was the closure of the Turkish Straits in August and September of 1914. So those are some of the ways in which distant decisions in peace and war and financial policy affected Montana. Now I want to look at some of the consequences. Success, and of course that's why people came. Not just success, but big success, make a pile. And so for many people there was prosperity, wealth for individuals, families, communities, companies, enterprises. For towns and cities, those that survived and actually diversified from a single economy town to a, a diversified economy town, of all the large cities in, both in Montana, only two have had a, a higher population every consecutive federal census. Those are Bozeman and Billings. So Billings was a boom town. Actually, it's had at least two railroads in the 1880s, oil in the mid-20th century, and it's never at least had a, at least a decline recorded in the census. And so it succeeded. Helena, of course, uh, went from a mining town to a government town. And uh, so there was success. The booms brought the population that made Montana a territory, and then 25 years later, a state. And the philanthropy, there's philanthropy in the state. There's, there's named structures that reflect boom. Charlie Bear's wool helped make the Alberta Bear Theater what it is when his daughter sent, made a, a crucial donation. And so that was sheep in wool, the behind that renovation of the theater, the Phoebe Hearst Library in Anaconda. Uh, Hearst was one of Marcus Daly's partners. And uh, so that, that library is copper. And then on the MSU campus, what used to be called the Reno Sales Stadium, it's now Bobcat Stadium, but that was Butte Copper from the Reno Sales, a mining engineer and geologist for the Anaconda Company. So there's some very physical, concrete uh, evidence of that. And then there's other evidence that's more quirky, and that is the high school mascot names that survive in towns long after the industry that supplied the name is gone. So in Centerville, in the coal area southeast of Great Falls, you have the Centerville miners. There's no mines left, but boy, the water in the creek shows you that there's still stuff coming out of those hills. It's a bright brown, red colored creek. Harloton. Uh, the Milwaukee Railroad Division Point, the railroad left in 1980, but they're still the Harloton engineers, and when they win a state title, they, 
they, they, the team stands in front of that box cab electric in the town park for their official photo after, the, after they get home. In 1941, the largest refi oil refinery in Montana was in Sunburst, almost on the Canadian border, uh, north of Shelby. And, and the, the refinery is long gone, but it's still the Northern Toole County High School refiners. And then since we're in beet country, Chinook um, is the sugar beaters, or for short, the beaters, go beaters. So those are, those are uh, little odd remnants of, of the, boom, uh, the boom, even after the bust. But, uh, but what interests us more than success, I think, is failure. There's something about failure that intrigues us. Why else would we keep going back to Custer? Uh, or, <laughs> or Meriwether Lewis's career after the expedition. And for rail fans, it's a Milwaukee road. You can never rehash that enough. And I think it's because, I think th there's many reasons. Studying failure gives us a chance to study or consider what might have been. But success is less interesting because when it happens, it's not a surprise to those to whom it happens. They think they've earned it, they deserve it. There's actually little explanation. We worked hard, we persevered, we succeeded. End of story. But when there's failure, the, uh, that is unexpected. It certainly is seen as undeserved by those to whom it happens. And there's a need to explain. Or as Mary Clearman Blue wrote in her memoir, All But the Waltz, as she's talking about her family and their failures in the homestead boom and then bust. And she writes, bad banking, bad farming, bad luck. We still look for ways to externalize the dream dream gone sour, to use cause and effect to distance ourselves from human misery. And so the failures in Montana, the busts, have intrigued people from Wallace Stegner um, to, uh, to Dan Cushman, who manages, as he often does, to put some humor into it. And I wanted to finish up by reading some of, some of the how people have looked at failure, family failure, um, or on a larger scale to explain Montana and the human experience here. This is uh, from the standard history of Montana, uh, the history of two centuries by Malone, Rader, and Lang. And this is their consideration of the, the collapse of the homestead boom due to drought and post-war recession 1919-1920. After almost 60 years of nearly continuous expansion in business activity and population, as prosperity vanished, so did optimism. Montana lost more in the post-war depression than, than its marginal farmers. To a considerable extent, it also lost its self-confidence and its faith in the future. A.B. Guthrie was more blunt in his novel of the fur trade. And, he, and this, he didn't write this in the book. He wrote this about what he intended to convey in the book. And he writes that uh, another universal of the human experience is each man kills the thing he loves. No man ever did it more thoroughly or in a shorter time than the fur hunters. And I think the person who probably spent most of his life thinking about failure, especially in the West and especially in the drylands, was Wallace Stegner. And his, his, it was his father that went up there to make a pile, and he, and he didn't, and his family suffered. And 
At one point, as they're sitting on this summertime-only homestead, no intent to settle permanently there, he and his mother are watching flies trapped in flypaper. And the harder the flies try to get out of the gooey flypaper, the more they mire themselves. So his mother looks, uh, uh, they're watching. My mother's lips drew up as if, she, as if she had tasted something nasty. What's the matter? Sorry for the old flies, I said. It's a parable she said, and crumpled the sheet up and stuck it in the sheep wagon oven we used in chilly weather. A parable indeed, in spite of my mother's flimsy pretense that we were farmers of, her, of the kind her parents were, drawing their full sustenance from the soil and tending the soil as good husbandmen should, she was not fooled. It was not a farm, and we were not farmers, but wheat miners and trapped ones at that. We had flown in carelessly, looking for something, and got ourselves stuck. The only question was how to get free. Well, that's not a good way to end the talk. So what I want to do... <laughs> so what I want to do is go to, if there's a, uh, there should be a genre of, of literature of boom and bust. And my, my nomination for my favorite one would be a book by Dan Cushman called The Silver Mountain. And it was, uh, it's, a, it's, it's about the silver boom in Montana. It's, uh, it's set in a place that I think somewhat resembles Phillipsburg granite, although I think it probably combines aspects of other places as well. And for the two, the, the last quotes I have left, you have to understand what high grading is. High grading in mining, in metal mining, is taking the ore that is visibly rich. It is, looks, it's obviously metallic and taking that out. In this context, it means that when the miners were underground, of course, they were blasting the ore and putting in ore trucks that would go out to the mill. But they would actually pocket the high grade. They'd put it in their lunch pail. They'd put it in their coat pocket. And they would take it out. They'd keep it. They might sell it as, as to collectors or to the assayer. But they were basically stealing the richest ore in small amounts from the mine. The mine operators knew it, but they were making so much money, they thought they could live with that pilf level of pilferage. And so if you had to use high grading in a sentence, uh, it would be like someone at the salad bar, stop high grading the olives out of the salad. <laughs> so here are several quotes. And this, this is the characters. It's after the, after the silver bowl. Boom has busted, but they're looking back and they're remembering the exuberance and the optimism and the energy of that, that time. And I think that it, it conveys very well what makes booms and why as much evidence as there is why the busts catch people off guard. And so one character is saying, I'll tell you what made young Ireland good. It was all the high-grade ore that never got to the owners. Everybody was doubling his wages out of the high-grade stoves or getting his hand into the concentrates. I remember one time that fellow called Big Frenchy came in with 11 pounds of solid ruby silver in his dinner pail. It was the most beautiful stuff you ever saw. D. Hinchel bought it from him. D. paid $55 for it. $55, one day's work, and his wages besides. It made a good town. I, and then and there's like the characters talk more, and the, the same one says again, I, I need a good day with the ore roaring down the chutes of young Ireland and all those fellows with their faces beaming like tomorrow's Rothschilds and their dinner pails a good deal heavier in the hoisting than they were when their shift commenced. How all the games used to click away, all the warm laughter, 
It met you every morning in the street. We struck it rich there. I'm not just talking about money. It was, for as, it was as if for a little while all mankind struck it rich. It was great. It was like youth. It was great while it lasted. We threw it away with both hands and never dreamed, but the supply was inexhaustible. It always got richer as you went down. Do you remember that? It always got richer as you went down. Thank you.